Anybody ever had somebody encourage you with something that they said? Yeah. We talked last week about discouragement specifically. We get to talk about encouragement this week, which is really good. But somebody comes up and you're just in a bad place, you're in a hard way, you need some wisdom, you need something, and somebody steps in and they say exactly what you needed to hear. A well-placed word, the right thing at the right time. And let me ask you, is there power in that? Yeah, man, it seems to me that there is. I don't quite understand the hows and the whys of it all, but it's like a shot of adrenaline. It's like a healing bomb, B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. <clears throat> not many healing bombs out there, right? I don't know, you're the bomb, that's kind of a healing thing, right? You're the bomb. But anyway, those, those well-placed words are like that, and they get you over the hump, and then they propel you towards your goal, or they help you through your despair. Now, I'm not talking about like motivational cat posters, hang in there, right, you know? I guess that serves its purpose from time to time, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more like heart-to-heart, life-on-life stuff here. Kind of like an Adrian the Rocky type of speech. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry that you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't apologize for me, I apologize for you, because you need to know this Adrian on Rocky thing. Yoda to Luke, right? Some of you are still not with me. One of my favorites, one one of the favorite encouraging words that I've ever heard happened between Sam and Frodo. Now, are you with me now? Lord of the Rings, right? Let me read it. Frodo's at one of his lowest points and he's saying, "Eh." this is what he says. Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. And here you go, are you ready? Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes... You didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. But if you were too small, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I do. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. And Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Cue the Eye of the Tiger montage, right? That's not Eye of the Tiger. That's no easy way out, sorry. Rocky Four instead of Rocky Three. sorry. But But it does happen. So these words, and, and, and if you saw, if, if you read the book, I don't know if the, if the book's laid out exactly like that or not, but the movie, you just see a light come into Frodo's eyes, and you see his back straighten, and he gets up, Sam grabs his hand, and they pull him up, and they move forward from some words. Frodo moves from, I can't do this, to doing it, from some words. Now, are words important? Yeah. Are your words important? You bet they are. Are God's words 
important. Yeah, enormously. What we're going to see today, I actually had a grand vision for today, okay? I had a grand, crazy, off-the-wall thought of doing chapters 5 and 6 together. Why is that funny? Okay. But... And, uh, well, what's funny is we're ending up doing chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 today, okay? Okay? I'm trying to do larger chunks here, but this one I couldn't. But actually, we're going to cover three different books of the Bible today. So there. Okay? There's an encouraging word for you. So there. Write that down. So if you would, stand with me as we read these two verses from God's Word, Ezra. We start in chapter 5 today, verses 1 and 2. And again, if we can run the risk, which we can't, of overemphasizing this, these are the very words of God for the people of God. So Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Let's pray. God, we pray what we sang earlier. Speak, O Lord. Speak and be heard. Encourage, strengthen, challenge. Correct, reprove, rebuke with your holy word by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we trust you and not ourselves. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So yeah, two verses. <laughs> but we're going to see a lot of Bible today, y'all. A whole lot of Bible. And th- something that's been really, really encouraging to me through this study of these two verses is... We're going to get into Haggai and Zechariah today. How many of you ever heard messages from Haggai and Zechariah, right? How many of you have even read them? I mean, really, truthfully, Haggai is two chapters, Zechariah is 14, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. Zechariah will blow your mind. Zechariah is not baby talk. (laughs) Zechariah is like, what the world is going on here? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it excites me because now, after today, I believe, those two prophets will come alive to you. And I mean, it's the living Word of God all the time. But when you know the context, when you know the place in the story that it fits in, you're like, oh, that's what's going on. So I I think I can commend to all of us in here this morning from 3 to however old you are. Okay, I'll take that. Um, These two books, Haggai and Zechariah, that you can kind of be chewing on through the rest of our study of Ezra because now you know where they go. And let me tell you what, especially to me, Haggai jumps off the page when you know the context. Zechariah, again, not so much because it's kind of weird. We'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, it excites me to open up two books of the Bible today that maybe were closed to you before. That's exciting to me. And you're going, okay, shut up, talk. Okay, shut up and talk. Can you do that? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now, the last time we saw our returned exiles, they had stopped the building of the temple after having been harassed and discouraged 
by the peoples of the land who scared them and discouraged them into not building anymore. The peoples of the land used a lot of different tactics to intimidate the Jews because the Jews wouldn't let them be a part of building the temple. And we saw in chapter 4, verse 24, this is where we left last week, then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, when we go to chapter 5, verse 1, we see that we're in the second year, by the previous verse, of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So historically, let me set that for you, that's around 522 or 521 B.C. So the hammers and the chisels had been silenced at the temple for about 15 years. Some say 14, some say 15, some say 16, depending on how you... We're going to stick with 15 just because it's in the middle. What can change in 15 years in your life? 15 years! About half of y'all ain't 15 yet. I mean, what can change in 15 years? 15 years from now, I'll be 58, almost 59. 15 years. So they stopped. They stopped doing the one thing that God had told them to do for 15 years. And they would not have started back had God not done something. So here we find ourselves, we'll say 522 B.C. There's no building. There's nothing going on. But then we find out that God does something. In order to find out what He did... Now we see here in 5.1, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now, that's all Ezra says. So we'll turn to Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, Zebaniah, Malachi. It's near the end of your Old Testament. If you need to look in your index, that's fine. Two big chapters of Haggai. And we're going to look at Haggai. We're going to read the whole thing. But I want you to turn to Haggai which is really frustrating to try to say, Haggai, 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 Haggai. We're going to read verse 1 right now, chapter 1, verse 1 of Haggai, which starts out in the second year of Darius the king, right? So that's where we left ourselves and our exiles, returned exiles in chapter 4, verse 24 of Ezra. So same year. And then Haggai gets even more specific. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, we know these folks, right? Zerubbabel, Joshua is just a different rendering of Jeshua. So here's the governor and the high priest, the chief priest, and Haggai is speaking to them. Okay? Haggai 1.1 picks up where Ezra 4.24 had left off in the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now let's just be clear about this sixth month thing. It's not the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius. It's the sixth month of the Jewish calendar in the second year of Darius's reign. Okay? Why would I say that? Because their calendar dictated their worship, which dictated their life. So they're going to go by their own calendar, but they'll mark it by the reign of a foreign king because they don't have a king set over them. So when I say six months, second year, those things aren't really related. Six months is Jewish calendar, second year is reign of Darius. Just so you know that. We're going to stick to the Jewish calendar when we're talking about months. That's important. 
because they are, again, they're going to base their worship, their rituals, their lives on the Jewish calendar. Darius was in his second year of reigning, and in that year, in the sixth month of the Jewish calendar, on the first of the month, what happened? What happened? Was it that Haggai started preaching? The answer to that is yes and no. The emphasis here in Haggai 1.1 is not on the preacher, but on what he is preaching. It doesn't say Haggai came. It says the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel and Joshua or Joshua. And yes, we need to make sure that we make that distinction. The coming of the word of God is what is being showcased here. Go back to the Reformation stuff we did on Wednesday nights in October. What was important? Martin Luther? No. What was important was the Word of God. Same thing going on here. The Jews had abandoned the work on the temple for 15 years. Then God spoke. And note who He spoke to. He spoke to Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua or Joshua the high priest. The leaders. He spoke to the authority amongst the people of God. And what does God say to these leaders? Look at the message Haggai brought. We're going to read verses 2 through 5 now of Haggai 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's pretty scathing, y'all. You say, well, I don't quite see it. Well, let me help you. What this is, this is the first of four messages in Haggai's quick two chapters. He speaks, gets four messages in these two chapters. And what's God saying? He points out that the people are rationalizing and saying that it's not time to rebuild the house of God. Now again, it's been this way for 15 years. Oh, we'll get around to it, but it's just not time. It just doesn't feel right right now. Surely God would want us to attend to our own stuff first and be happy, right? The time has not yet come is what they were saying. But how does God respond to that? He says, is it time for you to not only build your own houses but your paneled houses? Now let me explain what that means. That means that they were gussying up their own houses to the point of having decorative wood on the inside. Now, where do you reckon they got that wood from? Hmm, maybe from the wood that they were sending down to build the house of God? That's possible. I don't know that for sure. But they were taking possibly the things of God for the temple of God and they were beautifying their own houses with it. Think wallet. Think checkbook. Is it paneled houses time? Is that what time it is? That's what God says. And as a result, is it not worry about the one thing we came back here to do time? Is that what time it is? That we can just forget the one thing we were sent to do? Is it time for that? The house of God lies in ruins, but your houses are beautified with paneling. Is that what time it is? And then verse 5, the imperative command of this message. Now therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your Ways. Consider your ways. Think about the ramifications of the way that you're living. You're putting your needs and even your wants first to the detriment of the one thing that God has commanded you to do, which is to rebuild this temple. 
Consider your ways. The literal rendering is weigh in your hearts your conduct. And this is so much more about their internal processes than their outward actions. Their outward actions showed what was going on inside of them. And to that I say, ouch. Look at your heart and what is treasured in there. Reminds me of Jesus saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Writer of Proverbs says in 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. God is saying, look inside your heart and see what you see there. Because what I see in your outward actions is that what's in your heart is idolatry. What I see in your heart is selfishness. What I see in your heart is prosperity and wanting what you want to the detriment of the work of God. There is a great emphasis in the Bible on the heart of man. And here in Haggai, God causes people to weigh their hearts in order to see their deeds in proper perspective. Consider your ways. All being said, they are consumed with themselves, their comfort, their pleasure, their wants, and their own little worlds, and are not concerned about God and His commandments. Now here's the tricky part. They might be outwardly moral. They might even be keeping the religious feasts and sacrifices, but in their hearts they are consumed with the disease of self. And God challenges them to consider that. Now what else does He say? Let's look at Haggai 1, 6-11. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Is anybody besides me convicted by these words? Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Anybody ever frustrated with your job and feel like you just can't get ahead? And what am I doing this for? And what's the purpose? And blah, blah, blah. In this part of the message, God addresses that the people have looked for much but they haven't gotten it. And instead they got little. They got little harvesting, little eating, little drinking, little clothing, and little wages. And he again says for them to consider their ways and go get wood and build my house. And why? So that he, so that God may take pleasure in that house and be glorified. And is that not the purpose of your life? That God would be pleased with your life and be glorified in your life? And then he again tells them that it was him who withheld the dew and caused drought and paltry crops and a negative return on their labors and investments. God did this because of his house that lies in ruins while each of the Jews, get this, busied himself with his own house. Again, I don't know if this affects you like it does me, but it is an absolute scorching rebuke to me. 
We're so caught up in our kingdoms. We're so caught up in our everyday lives. We're so caught up in getting ahead. We're so caught up in just paying the bills. And God says, why do you think it's hard to pay the bills? Because I've made it hard to pay the bills because you're not concerned with the things of God. You're concerned with your own little world. Now, am I saying God's going to bless you abundantly if you do what He wants and you're not going to have to worry about paying the bills? No, I'm not saying that. But this internal strife in the mind, in the heart, the anxiety, the depression, all these things that I talk to people five days a week over here at this therapy office is because your focus is not on the purposes and plans of God. Because of His house. God is clearly using the scalpel of His Word to open up His people and do surgery on their hearts. He's calling them to look inside and be more concerned about His house than their own houses. He's checking their love for Him in comparison to their love for their stuff. And they are falling far short of the level of love and dedication that God is looking for from them. And He tells them to fix it internally and externally. Now we've looked at Haggai. What about Zechariah? We'll get to him in a minute. Verse 1 of Ezra 5 mentioned him too. Go back to Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. We'll be Bible hopping a lot today. If you don't want to hop back and forth, you can keep up here. So that was the charge that came from Haggai. And then what happened in verse 2? Then... Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Well, looky, looky, looky. God speaks and the people of God, led by their leaders, do what? Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the government and the priestly line, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem 15 years later. The leaders led and the work resumed. Haggai reports it like this in Haggai 1.12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Now that's the next verse in Haggai after what we left off. After the consider your ways, blew away stuff. Consider your ways. Then... They picked up and they started doing what God had sent them back there to do. So it wasn't just the government and the religious leaders. It was all the remnant of the people who obeyed the voice of the Lord their God as presented by Haggai. And Haggai adds that the people feared the Lord. They considered their ways and came back to the fear of the Lord, which is a good place to start. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7 says, is the beginning of knowledge So now look at that. The people sinned and they sinned for, oh, about 15 years by building their own kingdoms instead of God's temple. God rebuked them and called them to repentance and they responded by getting about God's business. Now that's good stuff there, y'all. And it serves as a pattern and an example for us and how to respond to God's Word, especially a rebuking and a correcting Word. Now listen, what Haggai said that God said, what God said through Haggai was pretty sharp. It was a very pointed rebuke. 
you are wrong in doing this, you should be doing this. Now that could hurt my feelings, right? I'm sure their feelings were hurt. And when we come to genuine confession and repentance, you better bet there should be some emotion. Against you, O Lord, and you alone have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. And when we know that we've grieved the heart of a holy God, there should be tears. I'm not telling you to cry and get emotional for the heck of it. But when you realize the holiness of God and how disgusting your sin is, it should evoke some emotion. So, 14 or 15 years, these people lived in disobedience and selfishness. Then God sends His Word through His man to His people and change happens, work happens, and God's glory happens visibly. But that's not all the verse says. Look at the end of the verse. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now we got more to look at. If we just had the words of Ezra, we might not know much, but because we have Haggai and Zechariah, we know quite a bit. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. What did Haggai and Zechariah say that showed that the prophets were with God's people and were supporting them? Well, Haggai is pretty clear. Look at the next verse in Haggai, which is 113. <coughs> then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. Now that's the next verse. I'm with you, declares the Lord. Well, that's pretty plain. Could there be any clearer or more encouraging message than to know that God is with you? What are we celebrating at Advent? What are we celebrating at Christmas? Emmanuel, God is with us. Does this encourage you? Man, it ought to. Because if God is with us, who can be against us? I think we just, I don't know. Emmanuel, God with us. God becoming man and making it possible for Him to be with us. So here, in this support role, the prophet brings the word that God is with them. He boosts the morale of His people by showing them His pleasure with what they've done by saying, I'm with you. Just what the formerly discouraged and distracted builders needed to hear. But God doesn't stop encouraging there. Look at Haggai 2, 1 through 9. This is, wow, this is so incredible to me. In the seventh month, so we jump up there to the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Stop a second. Let's go back a couple weeks when these folks were gathered around a foundation. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. But that's not all he says. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, taking them to the past, my spirit remains in your midst, in the present, fear not. But he's not done. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Yet once more in a little while, in the future, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. That's great. But listen, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, again, go back around this foundation and what was going on a couple weeks ago when they laid this foundation and they had the cymbals and they had the trumpets and people were worshiping and what else was going on? People were weeping. And the people couldn't distinguish between the sound of the weeping and the sound of the worshiping. Because some people had seen the old temple and how much more glorious it was than this one that they just laid the foundation for. And they wept. And what does God say here? Look at how God speaks to that. He speaks directly to it and tells them to be strong. And then in verse 9 He says, The latter glory of this house that you're building shall be greater than the former, and that in this place God will give peace. Get your eyes off this little foundation and get your eyes focused squarely on the vision that God is presenting that something greater and bigger and finer and more glorious is going to happen here than ever happened in Solomon's big beautiful building. They were discouraged at the new foundation, knowing that it was nowhere near the size or glory of the old one. But God says, can you just grab a hold of what God just did there? He spoke directly to their discouragement and encouraged them with a vision of the future. And He says, this this is going to be much more glorious than Solomon's temple. Now hold on. Why would He say that? Stay with me. I said... God gave them a vision. Speaking of visions, now we can talk about Zechariah and what he was saying to support and encourage the people of God. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. And again, these guys are specific, man. They're dating their dates. They're writing their date on their sermon notes, man. That's what I'm talking about right there. In the eighth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, this is Zechariah talking to the same people that Haggai was talking to. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And again, they're looking back at their spiritual heritage, their past, and thinking about how great that was. And God's saying, These guys weren't all that either. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But... My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us. Stop there for right now. I was getting ahead of myself. So that's pretty clear, right? It's pretty clear that God is saying, I want you to remember the past but I want you to know that you can repent now and avoid some of the failures of the past if you'll repent and do what I ask you to do. Now he's going to give them some visions too. Now you want to talk about some mysterious stuff. Again, not baby talk. When God starts talking not in baby talk, we're going, what in the world is he talking about? Read Ezekiel. 
Read Zechariah. Seriously, if you want to see visions, look into his stuff. And we don't have time to cover all 14 chapters. You're welcome. And even if we did have time, there's a lot in Zechariah that is strange and baffling. In the first six chapters alone, there are eight recorded visions, including horsemen and myrtle trees, four horns and four craftsmen, a surveyor, a golden lampstand and two olive trees. This is my favorite. A flying scroll. This is another good one. A woman in a basket. And a vision of four chariots. And some of these visions are just weird, y'all. And biblical scholars have scratched their heads for three, 4,000 years going, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. But there are some really clear things. First thing that's clear is Zechariah's name literally means the Lord remembers. So when they said his name, they were literally saying the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers us. And then when we looked at 1 through 6 here, we saw verse 3 specifically is what I wanted to look at there. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, declares the Lord of hosts. God clearly calls them to come to Him, and if they will, He will entrust Himself to them and be their God for them and through them. Now that's pretty encouraging, right? And to make sure they understand the way that He sees them, He gives them a vision that I didn't mention in those other, in those other visions in chapter 3. Y'all have heard me read this before, but I'm going to read it again. And again, it places it in history in the way that we go, okay, that's what was going on. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Well, uh-oh. And the Lord said to Satan, we saw this in Jude, right? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Man, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. What can you say about it? Joshua is Joshua, the high priest. He's the high priest and he stands for the religious life of the returned exiles. Now for 15 years, they've stopped doing God's work. But they've repented and they're starting again, right? And here stands the religious leader of their day and he stands accused before God by Satan as a sinner, as one who prefers his own things rather than God. And he is dirty. He's clothed in his own deeds and he's filthy before God. And what does God do? Turn his head and say, This is repugnant. Remove this filth from my sight. No. (laughs) He rightfully receives the accusations against him and in so doing, the whole nation. And then he takes away the iniquity by God's doing and puts clean clothes equaling righteousness on him. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. His deeds are filthy. I'm going to give him my righteousness. I'm going to give them, after 15 years of disobedience, my righteousness. I'm going to clean them up and I like it. Zechariah's like, hey, can we put a clean turban on his head too? They're like, yeah, let's do that too. 
Now you talk about encouraging. It's God saying to His people, I know your sin. I know you're forsaking me for your own wants and desires for the past 15 years and I declared you clean and righteous by my own doing. I will not receive accusation against you. I am with you and I am for you. Now do you think that encouraged the people just a little bit? It encourages the heck out of me. And I got a lot of heck in me, y'all. I've sinned more than just 15 years. I got 43 years of them piled up against me. I got a bunch this morning. And God won't receive the accusation against me because He's clothed me in the very righteousness of Christ. God is with us and God is for us. That's pretty encouraging. I'd be encouraged too if I received what they received. And guess what? I did. Now, how do we apply this? And there's a lot more in Haggai and Zechariah we could go into, but I just wanted you to see the encouragement to get the work started and the encouragement to keep the work going once they started it. And it was the Word of God that encouraged them. So I've got four W's again. Since we live in a www.world, we'll... Uh... And some of these are similar words or the same words as what we've had W's before. What was it? Waking, working, weeping, worshiping, right? This is, uh, these four W's are work, wait, word, and ways. Wait, word, ways. Oh, sorry. Wait, work, word, ways. I left one out, didn't I? Work, wait, word, ways. Okay. So, first one is work for our application points. And what I want to suggest with work is don't underestimate simple obedience. What Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. Haggai's recorded ministry was for a whopping four months. And it consisted of four messages that are about a paragraph each. Two of them were on the same day. And because of his four simple acts of obedience, a whole nation was stirred into repentance and action because he was faithful to share the Word of God with the people of God. Moms, dads, employees, employers, kids. Simple acts of God-honoring obedience are not to be overlooked. So we work. And what does that work look like? Not everybody had a hammer and chisel. Not everybody had a direct word from the Lord. Haggai did and he brought it. And so I'm saying don't underestimate simple acts, simple works of obedience. Some of you all have heard this name. Most of you have not. Edward Kimball. Anybody know who Edward Kimball is? If you do know that name, stick your hand up. One or two of you. Edward Kimball is a nobody. It's a reason you don't know him. Because he's a nobody. He taught Sunday school class to a bunch of rowdy little boys. 
You do know him. And one of those little boys in his Sunday school class was a boy named Dwight. Dwight L. Moody. And God reached into the heart of Dwight L. Moody in that Sunday school class and regenerated him. And Dwight L. Moody was born again under the ministry of Edward Kimball and nobody teaching Sunday school to a bunch of rowdy boys. That's pretty awesome because D.L. Moody was a man of God, a man used mightily of God. But that's not enough. Because a man named J. Wilbur Chapman was converted to Christ, born again at a Dwight Moody evangelistic meeting. Another famous evangelist named Billy Sunday was converted at a J. Wilbur Chapman meeting. Mordecai Ham was converted at a Billy Sunday meeting. And a guy named Billy Graham was converted at a Mordecai Ham meeting. One man teaching Sunday school to a bunch of rowdy little boys. Sit down, Dwight. Shut up, Dwight. Listen, Dwight. I'm going to take you out to your mom, Dwight. Jesus loves you, Dwight. And because of that, Moody, Chapman, Ham, Sunday, Billy Graham. You ever wonder what kind of impact the Lord's had through Billy Graham? Go down to the cove sometime and look at this museum at the millions upon millions, maybe billions of people that have heard the gospel because of the ministry of Billy Graham. And that all started because one man, generations before, taught Sunday school to a bunch of rowdy little boys. Thank God for grandmas. Thank God for, Thank God for prayers. People who pray. Well, I can't do nothing but pray. Then God, please pray. Bend the ear of Almighty God and see what He can do. Don't neglect the work that God has given you to do. Right in front of you. Every day. Work. Simple acts of obedience God uses in powerful ways. So work is first. Second, this one's near and dear to my heart, wait. Look for the latter glory. We can't see the end of what we're going through. We can't see Billy Graham from Edward Kimball. We can't. Does that mean that we're like, oh well, my life don't mean nothing. I ain't no good for nothing. God can't use me. No, wait. Especially when we're discouraged, we can't see the end of what we're going through. So in our discouragement, in the hard times, listen to me church, believe that God really is causing all things to work together for your good. Was the temple that these ragtag Jews built more glorious than Solomon's? Absolutely not. It was a shell of it. It was mincemeat. But, listen to me, God Himself in the form of Jesus Christ would indeed step foot into the place where this temple was being built. And so, God with us manifested His glory in a way that was far superior to any building anyone could construct. These exiles did not understand that even though Zechariah is full of messianic prophecies. They didn't understand it. 
But God told them, wait, because the latter glory is going to be greater than the former glory. And they're looking back at the former glory saying, that was awesome. The Shekinah glory of God was there. The ark was there. And now we've got this pitiful little building. And God says, it's going to be much more glorious here. And one day, Jesus Christ was dedicated. And that's not in the same temple. Herod had built a temple by that point. It's pretty majestic. But the majesty was not Herod's. It was God Himself who came and was presented in that temple, who at 12 stayed around in that temple and hung out with the older guys and was baffling them. And then years later would turn the tables over in that temple. And not too long after that would hang on a cross outside the walls of the city, not in that temple, and that veil in that temple would be torn in two because now the dwelling place of God is with man. They didn't see that. And you don't see the glory that's coming from your simple acts of obedience. You don't see the glory that's coming through your suffering. But wait. The latter glory, church, is always in the life of the Christian greater than the former things. Always. Always. And the temple that they were building was just a foreshadowing of a time when God would dwell with man temporarily for a brief period and then eternally in the end. But our human earthly eyes cannot see that in and of themselves. So what do we do? As we wait, this pushes us to trust God when we can't see the present or the future clearly. And what we tend to do in those times is to look back to the past and it was better back there. I must have been better back there. God was happy with me then. Don't do that. C.S. Lewis said there are far, far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. And our hope, our trust is that God is working all things toward the completion of something greater, bigger, and better than whatever we are going through at the moment. Paul said these momentary light afflictions are producing in us a weight of glory that is far beyond compare to whatever you're going through now. So wait and trust God in the midst of it. Wait and wait with expectation. So we work, we wait, and then word. I mean, how, what happened here in Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah? As you work and as you wait, let the word strengthen you, the very word of God. Clear instruction for today is what Haggai brought. Today do this. Be strong. Consider your ways. And visionary pictures for tomorrow, which is, Zechari- which is what Zechariah brought. And both are essential and both are a plenty in the Bible. But something happens when we start looking at the Bible. It challenges us. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Yay! For reproof. Uh-oh. For correction. Whoops. And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We need taught. I think we like teaching. We're good with that, right? What about reproof, correction, and training in righteousness? These indicate something difficult. These indicate things that hurt. These indicate things that we suffer loss from as a result. When you're reproved, when you're corrected... When you're rebuked by the Word of God, how do you respond? Do you consider your ways and repent 
listen, part of what Martin Luther fought for in the Reformation was repentance is a way of life for the Christian. It's not a one-time decision. I've repented. Uh, Yes, you have, but you should be repenting all the days of your life. You should see your shortcomings and your faults, and when the Word brings them up to you, and it will, if you're engaged in the Word by the power of the Spirit, the Word is constantly cutting things away. And we're going, that too? And he says, yes, that too, because I've got something better for you. If you will bend your heart and bend your knee to what my Word says, you will live a life of repentance, and what God has for you in the future is better than all the stuff that you leave behind. We have to be willing to be corrected by the Word. Are we willing for that to happen when we approach the Bible? Or are we just looking for a nice devotional thought that will help us see the rainbow in the storm? Or be a good cat poster to tell us to hang in there? Hang in there, brother. Oh, great. How about you are sinning in the way that you're treating your children? How about you're sinning in the way that you covet things and money in your heart? Are you willing to receive that message? You're sinning when you click that mouse and look at that pornography. You're sinning when you refuse to submit yourself to the authority of the church. You're sinning when you're being lazy. You're sinning when you're being gluttonous. Are you okay with those corrections? Because if you're not, don't pick up the Bible because that's what it's going to do to you. And you said, the preacher just told me not to pick up the Bible. Come on. Consider your ways. We have to have our minds changed. We have to have our affections changed. We have to have our will changed if we are going to effectively serve God. If you have an attitude, well, I think I'm all right. You're probably not being changed or challenged by the Word. And if you're not being changed and challenged by the Word, you are walking in disobedience. And you have to confess that and you have to repent of it. Turn around and go the other way. Run toward the Word which is going to rebuke and reprove and correct and train you in righteousness for your good. It's not, oh, woe is me. i got to give up all my stuff. If that's your attitude, you don't know what the love of Christ is. In all my comforts, Jesus is better. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. How does God do that? He does it through the Word. We have to have our minds changed, and only the Bible can do that. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're almost done. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, quick quiz, let's poll the audience. Who doesn't want what's good and acceptable and perfect? You have to have your mind changed and renewed by the Word of God if you're going to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And all your stuff, all your things that you're afraid God might put His finger on, and He will, grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So we work, we wait, we engage the Word, and finally 
ways. Consider your ways. My heavens, those words have haunted me all week long. It's one thing to look at the Jews' obedience in these two verses in Ezra 5 from today and rejoice at their obedience. Now you read Ezra chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. The prophets came, the people picked up their stuff to build, and the prophets encouraged them. That's all we would have gotten from Ezra alone. We went, Yay, good, fantastic. But in looking at the process of how they came to that decision, knowing that God pointed His holy finger at their selfish hearts, it's a little bit scary to me to wonder what He may put His finger on in my life. And what I want to ask you today as we finish, consider your ways. Weigh in your heart the reason for and the outcome of your actions. And when I, what I'm talking about is that thing in the deep, dark recesses, the darkness that you retreat to when you're running from the light. That thing that you hold on to, that pet sin. Or maybe it's not those things. Maybe it's just the broad overview of your whole life which is not bent toward God at all. It's about today and it's about what I want to eat and it's what, how much money am I going to make and what am I going to get for Christmas. Consider your ways and pick up the chisel again. What do I need to weigh in my heart and see the scales tipping in my favor, my self-centered favor? Am I more concerned with myself than I am the things of God? And I would say generally, yes, I am. So I confess that. God, the psalmist would say, search me, O God, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Are you willing to pray that prayer? Because He's going to answer it. And He's going to put His holy finger on the unholy things in your life. And He's going to say, give these things up. Stop this because it's destructive and it's harming you and you're not about my business because you're more concerned with your own paneled house, your own kingdom, your own things, your own stuff, your own wants, your own desires. And I want to be glorified in your life and I can't be when that's all you're concerned about. And listen, I'm talking to believers here. I'm talking to Christians. Consider your ways. Are you walking in holiness or in selfishness? And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to get you to see your sin, which should move you to confession and repentance. And if our lifestyle is not marked by confession and repentance, we need to consider our ways. We work, we wait, we turn to the Word, and we consider our ways. I can't do this, Sam. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. Amen? We shouldn't even be here. I am Joshua the high priest standing in the presence of a holy God in filthy garments. By all rights, I shouldn't even be here. But we are... It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. 
full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? When my sins were happening. But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. Even sin must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. For in those stories, folks had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. And he is, y'all. So consider your ways. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your patience and your kindness which leads us to repentance. When we are faithless, you remain faithful and your mercies are new every morning. I celebrate grace that is greater than all of my sins. I celebrate the Spirit's power which enables me to confess my sins and to repent of my sins. I cannot do this in and of myself. I really cannot. But the Holy Spirit comes and He grabs me by the hand. And He says, "But all right, you shouldn't be here, but you are. And there's some good. There's some God in our everyday lives that's worth fighting for. So get up and work and wait and turn to the Word and consider your ways as we march forward to that day when there's no more repenting to be done. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your people. We praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction and then don't storm the kitchen. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, thank you all. You're dismissed.